haunts. How do we meet? Happy Halloween, everyone. Welcome back to another episode with myself, Simran, and Xiao. Today's topic of interest will be anemia. Quite a heavy topic. There's a lot of things to discuss, but Xiao is here to break it down in a way that's easy to digest. She'll go through some differentials and explain what anemia is, what are some presentations of anemia, when to suspect it, and then we'll go through some cool cases. Thank you so much, Simran. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Yes, I'm here to talk about anemia. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the first part where I talk about the clinical features, as well as some really quick and easy ways to remember anemia and different types of anemia. And then I'll follow that up with three cases that I've just made up. And hopefully you'll have fun, just as much fun as we do. Okay, let's start with what is anemia? Anemia is defined as low hemoglobin. And in a person, this can manifest as tiredness, fatigue, which we did an episode on, paleness, shortness of breath, and palpitations. On examination, you might find signs such as pale palmar creases, conjunctival pallor, as well as a flow murmur. The important thing to gather from all this information is that anemia is a symptom, which means that it something has precipitated it. And to be a really good medical student, as well as a good doctor, you need to find the cause. So how do we find the cause or how do we think about the cause? Well, let's start with how we investigate anemia. So like I said, anemia is low HB. So the best way to find out whether someone has low HB is to do a full blood examination. It's that easy. In terms of normals, here are some ballpark figures from WHO. It's really important to understand that the normals do change from lab to lab. So have a look at that little side panel that says all the normal values. But for ballpark figures in females, anything under 120 is considered abnormal. And for males, anything under 130 is considered abnormal. The next information that's really important in an FBE is the MCV, the mean corpuscular volume. That gives you an idea as to, on average, how big the red blood cells are. I like this because it categorizes your anemia. So there are three types of anemia that you can categorize from MCV. Too small is microcytic, same size as normal cells is normocytic and too big is macrocytic. And this is how I like to think about the causes. So once I know that a person has microcytic, normocytic or macrocytic anemia, I can think of it using really cool and easy mnemonics. So for microcytic anemia, which is usually microcytic hyperchromic anemia, it's TAILS. TAILS standing for T, thalassemia, A, anemia of chronic disease, I, iron deficiency, and this is the most common form of iron, uh, sorry, the most common form of microcytic anemia, L for lead poisoning, S for sideroblastic anemia. Please note that out of these five, the ones to remember are thalassemia, anemia of chronic disease, and iron deficiency. And that's because lead poisoning and sideroblastic are much, much less common. Moving on to normocytic anemia. Normocytic anemia can be 
memorized using the mnemonic ABCD. That's right, it is another ABCD, but at least there is a way to remember it. So A stands for acute blood loss, B stands for bone marrow failure, and that might be due to autoimmune causes as in aplastic anemia, or maybe myodysplastic causes, so such as cancers. Then there's C, which stands for chronic disease, and D that stands for destruction, which is more formally known as hemolytic anemia. Finally, moving on to our last category, macrocytic anemia, really big red blood cells. The mnemonic for macrocytic anemia is really cool. It's fat red blood cell. I love it because it's so easy to remember. F stands for fetus. So pregnant women do tend to have macrocytic anemia and that's linked to the fact that their baby is using up a lot of their folate. And we're going to talk about folate deficiency later on, but folate deficiency is one of the reasons for macro, uh, one of the causes for macrocytic anemia. A stands for alcohol, again, folate related. T stands for thyroid disease, more specifically hypothyroidism. R stands for reticulocytosis. B stands for B12 and folate. And these both together are known as megaloblastic anemias. And we'll talk about that later. And then C is cirrhosis and chronic liver disease. So just a quick summary, say these many, many times in your own time. Macrocytic anemia is TAILS. Can you tell me what TAILS stand for? Normocytic is ABCD. Have a go at what ABCD is. And macrocytic anemia is fat red blood cells. I hope it helps. Let's move on to the cases. So this is the first case. So Simran, I'll get you to interact with me and hopefully we can have a little bit of a discussion as opposed to more didactic from the one before. Case one is a 34 year old woman. She's a school teacher. She comes to you because she's starting to feel quite tired and fatigued. She noticed that she's unable to keep up with the kids at school. She also admits that she has been really busy and recently bought a new house and her and her husband's are also house flippers in their spare time. Because of how busy she's been, she's been eating out recently and having lots and lots of salad. They are, she does admit that she's having a bit of financial problems. When you ask about her periods, she tells you that she's regular, although she does tend to have heavier periods. They last for about eight days. And when you ask her about how many times she changes her pads, it's about four times a day. She tells you that before she was house flipping, she was okay, but she admits that her diet was completely different because she was able to um, home cook for herself. But now it's kind of changed and she's getting really worried because she doesn't want to take off too many days off work because of her tiredness and her fatigue. So Simran, can you please tell me in terms of, in the realm of anemia, what are your differential diagnoses? Fatigue and tiredness is a classic presentation of anemia. And the fact that her history predominantly points to um, a lot of blood loss because of her heavy periods, my first top differential would be iron deficiency anemia. Other things I might consider could be B12 deficiency or folate deficiency, which seems to be quite unlikely. Yeah, but my top, top differential would be iron deficiency. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Zimrin. From your differentials, can you tell me what investigations would you like to order? So the initial ones I'd want to do would be an FBE, maybe consider doing a blood film or a blood smear and then ordering iron studies. Great. So her iron studies have come back and her iron studies have come back with a low level of serum iron, a low level of serum ferritin, a high level of total iron buying capacity and a high level of transferrin saturations. Okay, so the first thing that stands out to me is the low ferritin. So that tells me that her iron stores are really low. Um, the high total iron bind binding capacity and the high transferrin in my, I, I perceive that as a compensatory mechanism for low iron. So there's an increased um, need to kind of um, transfer iron to the, and, and store iron. So for me, the low ferritin would be diagnostic of iron deficiency anemia. Great. That's fantastic. That's exactly what I was thinking of. So now that you know that she has iron deficiency anemia, how would you go about treating our lady in case number one? So I think the first thing we could start with is lifestyles. So um, encouraging her to have iron rich foods like red meat, um, any other meats, leafy green vegetables like spinach, maybe even iron fortified cereals and breads. It does seem to be interfering with her work a lot. So we can consider giving her iron supplements to start with, with um, and encouraging her to take that with vitamin C. Give that for about three to six months and then see how she's going and do a follow-up and review. You're a genius, Simran. That was fantastic. All right. So what I'm going to tell you guys about is a little quick summary about iron deficiency anemia. So the definition is quite self-explanatory. It's anemia caused by an iron deficiency. In terms of the epidemiology, it is the most common cause of microcytic anemia. One question that does come into mind is why is iron so important? How does it cause anemia? The reason why iron is so important is it is actually the oxygen binding component in hemoglobin, more specifically heme. Iron is, and that means that without lots of iron, you kind of lose that heme component and you lose the ability to bind to oxygen as well as you should. To give you an idea as to how precious iron is to the body, we kind of alluded it to it, but ferritin is the way iron is stored in the body. And that's why low iron represents itself as low serum ferritin. And that's why we're really, uh, we're really interested in it. In the body, the iron cycle and within the iron cycle, iron is actually mostly recycled. And we only lose about one milligram of iron. And that's why it's really important for us to keep taking bits of iron because over time, if you're not replacing the amount that's lost, you do end up with a deficiency. But just to let you know, it's not something that you develop over day, it's something that you develop over time. In terms of the causes, the causes can be categorized into three broad, broad categories. And I think depending on who you ask, you're gonna find lots and lots of ways to categorize iron deficiency causes. But for me, this is the simplest because I am a simple human being. So your three broad categories are things that go in, iron that goes in. So things like decreased iron intake, such as vegetarian diet or vegan diet and decreased absorption. So iron in the gut actually going into the body. These are known as malabsorptions and they can happen in two ways. One of them is quote unquote, having a sick gut. So something like celiac, 
celiacs or IBD that can affect your ability to absorb from your intestines and that can cause iron deficiency anemia. Then the other one is actually losing your gut. So if you had a gastrectomy or you had a resected portion of your bowel, that's also going to uh, affect your ability to absorb iron. Second broad category is losing. So the most simple way to lose lots of iron is chronic blood loss. So remember, acute blood loss is will cause normocytic anemia, whereas chronic blood loss, maybe from the gut, maybe through menstruating, or maybe through the urinary tract, will cause microcytic anemia due to iron deficiency. Then the last category is increased demand. So if you have a person growing in your belly, so if you're pregnant, or maybe you yourself are growing because you're a young child and you're growing up really tall, it's going to take up a lot of nutrients. And one of the nutrients that it takes up is also iron. So that's why it's really important for little kids to have lots of iron in their diet. And it's also really important for pregnant women to have lots of iron in their diet as well. Lastly, let's have a chat about management. In terms of management, Simran was totally on the ball. Lifestyle is the first thing that we want to start with, unless they come in and they're really, really severe with lots of symptoms. So start off with lifestyle, introduce an iron-rich diet. Where do you find iron from? Well, mainly red meats. They're really high in iron, so things like beef or kangaroo. Then the other meats are also really high in iron as well. Those are your second tier. If your uh, patient is a non-meat eater, then you can go for deep green vegetables such as spinach, broccoli, things like that. Lastly, to, uh, I should comment on iron fortification of food. So because the uh, public health has identified that iron deficiency is a problem, we've got lots of uh, fortif iron fortified cereals, breads and pastas. So that's to hopefully address everyone's iron needs because most of us eat cereal, breads or pastas. Okay, moving on to medical management, it's iron supplementation. Iron supplementation is very easily found over the counter. And you'll also commonly hear GPs say, in order to increase your iron absorption, have it with a glass of grapefruit juice. And that's because vitamin C increases your uh, iron absorption from your gut. There are so many preparations. And for me as a medical student, it can get really confusing. But let me just lay it down for you. So the electronic therapeutic guidelines recommends about 100 to 210 milligrams of iron per day. And as well as having it with vitamin C to increase absorption. So the one that I like to remember is Farograd C, and that's because it contains the right amount of elemental iron. And it also uh, includes vitamin C. So you're checking off both boxes, which is great. Win-win for me, just one Farograd C. Then the last one is non-oral medications for patients who need a quick replacement of iron. So these are patients who are really symptomatic and it's really starting to affect their daily life, such as case one. We could definitely argue that she needs this. So your first go-to is Ferinject or Ferric Carboxymaltose. This is an IV infusion. It can be done in the GP. It only takes about one hour. Just keep in mind that it's not on PBS, so it is quite expensive. It's out of pocket for the patient, but it is very well tolerated. The other two uh, IV infusions to think of is iron polymaltose and iron sucrose. These are only available in hospital. And I think the reason why is because there is kind of a side effect in terms of 
uh, anaphylactic shocks. And that's obviously not very good if you're not in the hospital. So keep that in mind. Before we move on, one thing, one final thing that I want to mention is in terms of side effects, iron supplementation, make sure you tell your patient about black stools and also make sure you tell your patient about the increased risk of constipation. That's something that they probably want to know so that they don't freak out when they go home and they see, oh my God, my poos totally changed color. Anyway, that's all I have for case one. I hope you had fun. Let's move on to case number two. You are in a GP clinic and a mother brings in her son. He's six this year. Both of them are recent immigrants from Africa. She is very worried and she tells you that her son is starting to be tired, he's looking pale, and he's getting really short of breath, especially when he's playing tag with his friends. His mother says that his eyes are starting to turn yellow and she remembers that he's definitely had this before in the past, but it kind of went away quite quickly. She said that this time it's been worse. It's been around for about a week now. And she does remember that he did recently have a cold. She also tells you that when before she moved here, when she was in Africa, she he did get uh, diagnosed, but she has no idea what it's called in English. She also tells you that her cousin, as well as the little boy's grandmother, also has the same condition. So Simran, in the realm of anemia, what differentials do you have? So just summarizing what you've told me, um, he's a six-year-old boy who's of African descent and he's presenting with symptoms of anemia. He's also got jaundice with the yelling of the eyes. And recently he had a cold and he's also got a family history. So the family history makes me think there's some sort of genetic involvement in the fact that he's African He's got jaundice, so my top differential would be sickle cell disease. Um, other differentials could be like thalassemia, G6PD, spherocytosis. Yeah, anything associated with the hemolysis that could lead to jaundice. Thank you, Simran. That was indeed a very exciting differentials. So from that, what investigations would you like to order? So basic FBE, blood film or blood smear. Um, would be the first set of investigations I'd like to order. If I do suspect thalassemia as my differential, I could consider ordering hemoglobin electrophoresis or DNA analysis, but it might not be the first thing that I order. Excellent. So you order a blood film and you see sickle cells, haldrol bodies, as well as basophilic stippling, teardrop cells, and different shapes and sizes of blood cells. So you have correctly identified sickle cell anemia. Congratulations. Let's do a quick summary of hemolytic anemia. So hemolytic anemia is an umbrella term and I really wish we had an hour to talk about it but they, because there's just so many. But since we only have a little bit of time, let's talk about the definition. So hemolytic anemia, again, it's basically saying what it is. It means that within the red blood cells, these red blood cells are either destroyed or they have they are too weak to sustain their full cycle and they're destroyed um, because their membranes are too weak. So that's the case for uh, sickle cell disease. There are many, many different types and I like to categorize things. I'm not sure if you realized. So there are two categories for this one. You have the intrinsic causes and the extrinsic causes. And let me just begin 
by saying that the injury causes are the most common causes of hemolytic anemia, especially thalassemia and sickle cell disease. So within intrinsic causes, you can subdivide them into three groups. So there's things or conditions about the defects of the red blood cell membrane. So things like spherocytosis or leptocytosis. Then there are the conditions about the defects in hemoglobin production, so thalassemia and sickle cell disease. And then you have other conditions which are about a defect in the red blood cell metabolism. So that's like G6PD deficiency and pyruvate kinase deficiency. So those are some examples of intrinsic hemolytic anemia. And I'm sure if you ask a person who specializes in this area, they're gonna tell you like a hundred more. Let's move on to the second category before I get too carried away. So the second category is the extrinsic causes of hemolytic anemia. So there are the immune mediated causes such as autoimmune hemolytic anemia, which is very easy to remember. I think this is the one that everyone remembers when we talk about hemolytic anemia. Then there's also things like lupus as well as rheumatoid arthritis. And that's because the poor red blood cells are marked with antibodies and the white blood cells subsequently destroy these red blood cells. Then there's hypersplenism, and this can happen in portal hypertension as well as some chronic leukemias. Then there's the mechanical acquired causes, which is valvular hemolysis, cardiopulmonary bypass hemolysis, infective endocarditis, hemodialysis, DIC, etc. Then you have pathologically acquired hemolysis, things like malaria. Malaria makes the red blood cells look odd, and that's probably why it's more prone to being destroyed by a white blood cell. And then you have drugs and toxins such as lead. So signs and, sorry, not even just signs, clinical features of hemolytic anemia is pretty awesome because not only do you have the signs and symptoms of anemia, which I talked about at the very start of this podcast, but you also have jaundice. And Siren and I did an episode on jaundice back when we first started the podcast. So if you're curious, have a listen to that. But just to quickly list what they are, signs and symptoms of anemia, I think fatigue, tiredness, shortness of breath and exertion, pallor. In terms of signs and symptoms for hemolysis, look for jaundice, icterus, dark urine, pale stools, hepatosplenomegaly. splenomegaly. In terms of investigations, Simran called out really nice investigations for the differentials that she was thinking about. But in terms of hemolytic anemia, I just want to draw your attention to a hemolytic screen. Hemolytic screen looks for reasons white blood cells might be destroying red blood cells. So look for reticulocytes or the serum haptoglobin, serum lactate hydrogenase. Let me say that again, serum lactate hydrogenase, serum bilirubin, focusing on unconjugated bilirubin, the Direx-Coom test and urinary hemosiderin. Blood films are really good. FBEs are really good anything to sort of support your uh, differential, uh, just order them. I'm just going to talk about the basics of management because management is very much according to the disease. And as I said, there's like 20 of them. So the principles are if they're really sick and their hemoglobin is really low, consider a transfusion. In general, hereditary anemias can be treated with a splenectomy and have a think about what consequences or what side effects that you can think about with splenectomy and how do you fix that so that's your homework to do then autoimmune 
uh, hemolytic anemias may be treated with immunosuppression. So that's sort of the basics. That rounds up all I have on hemolytic anemia. Let's move on to case number three. Case number three is a 54-year-old female and she's an accountant for living. She's feeling tired and fatigued and she's starting to feel some tingling in her feet. You notice that she's also pale and she tells you that she's short of breath, especially when she's climbing the stairs, heading into work. She has no medical history. She's usually fit and active. She, has, she does not take any medications or any supplements. She has no family history either of any hematological or other conditions. She tells you that she is starting to feel quite stressed at work. She's under pressure and due to COVID, there's been a lot of job cuts. She, she feels that she needs to do lots in order to save herself from being cut from the bottom. She does have a supportive husband and she doesn't feel that she needs any psychological help at the moment. And then at the end, she tells you she has been vegan for five years and she kind of wonders, is, is that it? Is that the reason why she's getting so tired? So Simran, in terms of the world of anemia, what are your differentials? So the one thing that stood out to me was the tingling. So that automatically makes me think B12 deficiency. So that would be the top, um, my top differential. And also the fact that she's been vegan for five years. I'm not sure if that's a long enough time for B12 deficiency to manifest, but if she, if prior to becoming vegan, if she had a low, um, a diet that was low in red meat, or she didn't have a lot of vitamin B12 in her diet, then that could be something that also could be contributing to it. So that would be my top differential. Um, other things could be your common iron deficiency anemia. Yeah, I think those are the only two that I'd be thinking in terms of my differentials. Sounds really good. What investigations would you like to order? So I would like to order um, FBE, consider ordering blood film or blood smear, can also consider ordering um, iron studies just to rule out iron deficiency anemia if it's like co-presenting with B12 and then serum B12 levels as well. Great. So you do realize that her serum B12 levels are low. What are your management options? So in terms of management, um, I think with B12, you can again do maybe consider doing diet modification. Um, I know that I know being vegan there's not a lot of foods that are rich in vitamin B12. So you can consider giving, depending on how low it is, you can consider giving B12 injections. I think that's the only thing I can think about in terms of management. <laughs> that's all good. Thank you so much for answering the question anyways. Uh, out of curiosity, folate and B12, if you remember to the start of the podcast, I kind of mentioned what they grouped together they could be called. Do you want to answer that? Uh, that was megaloblastic anemia. That's right. Okay, so let's talk about megaloblastic anemia and I'll give you a quick summary. So the two to remember is B12 deficiency and folate deficiency. So what on earth does megaloblastic mean? Megaloblastic just means really big cells. Then why do we get these really big cells? That's because folate and B12 play a really important role in DNA, RNA and protein synthesis. So combining this knowledge with our knowledge of erythropoiesis, which we could potentially think about doing one day, is that immature blood cells are usually start off really big. And then as they progress and mature, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. Unfortunately, if there's not enough folate acid and there's not enough B12, then the DNA is not properly synthesized. Therefore, the cells aren't able to get small 
and smaller and smaller and divide properly and mature. So instead, they stay in their immature form. And one thing to remember is the megaloblast cells that we look for in a blood film is actually the neutrophiles, and we look for hypersegmented neutrophiles, whereas the macrocytic anemia comes from the red blood cells. So the red blood cells are really big. This means that folate deficiency and beta deficiency doesn't just affect red blood cells. It actually affects the whole lineage. So you're going to find changes in lots of different types of cells, depending on the severity of the deficiency. But because red blood cells and neutrophils are really common, that's what we look for in blood films. So that's a bit of a fun fact. So let's talk about B12 deficiency and folate separately, starting with B12 deficiency because it's the more common. In terms of epidemiology, it's 5 to 15%. Risk factors of B12 deficiency include lifestyles. So B12 is mainly found in animal products. So if you're vegan, especially, or vegetarian, then you might be at a higher risk of developing B12 deficiency. Other things is looking for a medical history of lots of gut surgery, gastric bypass, intestinal malabsorptions like celiac disease, IBD, especially Crohn's, surgical resection. Think the ileum. The ileum is where B12 is absorbed. So if they have that resected, then they're going to have, they're more likely to have B12 deficiency. And then kind of weird drugs like metformin, PPIs, or H2 receptor antagonists. In terms of signs and symptoms, they're going to have signs and symptoms of anemia, but the thing to differentiate B12 from just any ordinary anemia is changes in sensation. So B12 also has a drop in myelination, and if you have a lack of B12, you don't get enough myelination on your nerves, and the first ones to affect is usually your feet, and you get some tingling in your feet. Talking about investigation, I really liked what Simran said it's diagnosed via low serum B12 levels. If B12 levels are a little bit controversial, you can also ask for serum holotranscobalamin, which is the active form of B12. If you're kind of still uncertain, you can also ask for a blood smear, and that's where you get the characteristic megaloblastic smears. You've got the hypersegmented neutrophils as well as the really big uh, red blood cells. Okay, there is one special form of B12 deficiency and that's pernicious anemia. That just happens when you have an autoimmune attack of your parietal cells in your stomach and that stops you from producing intrinsic factor, which is what actually sucks up the B12 or helps you suck up the B12 from your gut. In that case, you want to order some special blood tests and that's intrinsic factor antibody, antiparietal cells uh, or... Um, serum antiparietal cells, basically, and as well as serum gastrin. So uh, any antibody and high serum gastrin is indicative of pernicious anemia. In terms of management, you can definitely try lifestyle changes, which is considered eating animal products, but this might not be the best option for everyone. You can also, uh, and then the next thing is basically getting the injection or supplementing with B12 vitamin. In terms of complication, I think the one that you guys should remember is just neuropathies. So to, again, talking about uh, tingling, if it gets even worse, it can actually start affecting your reflexes as well as your cognition. So it's really important to remember about your B12. But 
you know, it's pretty good. Obviously, somebody who made us knew that B12 was really important because we can store it for years. Unlike iron deficiency, uh, unlike iron, which lasts for probably less than a month, yeah, Simran was right. You can store B12 for two to three years, which is pretty amazing. Okay, moving on to the next megaloblastic anemia, that's folate. Uh, let's start with the epidemiology. So in terms of adults, about 10.8% of adults get it. Apparently now it's getting quite uh, increasing in children. That's just because children don't really like eating vegetables and that's probably not a very good thing. So eat your veggies, kids. <laughs> so lifestyle risk factors include not eating lots of veggies and not eating fortified grains, as well as alcoholism. And then medical history, look for Again, intestinal malabsorption conditions, surgical intestinal resections, this time the jejunum, and the use of methotrexate, trimethoprim, sulfalazine, those medications will also use up your folate. Special one for folate is pregnancy. Um, pregnancy, you have that special, uh, you should supplement with folic acid, and that's because folic acid helps the baby grow its neurosystem. And that's the quickest and easiest way I can explain that. <laughs> okay, moving on to investigation. Folate is again, very, very easy to diagnose. Order a serum folate, and then you can also do a blood smear if you would like. Management, folate is found in leafy greens. So having lots of leafy greens is good. And one thing to keep in mind is cooking actually destroys the folate. So do tell your patients if they have folate deficiency, eat lots of fresh greens. Supplementation is also available. Unlike B12, you don't need an injection. Uh, you can find folate tablets readily available. Complications, once again, is the neurotube defects. So do remember the neurotube defects that can happen in fetuses in a mum with folate deficiency. Okay, that's all I have today. Thank you so much for listening to me. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll let Simon take it away. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shao. That was actually really, really educational. I learned so much today. Um, and I hope that all of our listeners learned a lot as well. It's quite a lot of information, but Shao broke it down really well. If you want to get some more, if you want to listen to some, some more of our podcasts, sorry, um, you can follow us on um, any of your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can find us on Spotify and Anchor. You can also follow us on Facebook. So um, our name is MiniMedPods. If you have any questions or any queries, you can also email us at minimedpods at gmail.com. And yeah, we hope to hear back from you and we hope that these podcasts are helping you. Um, so for now, I will bid goodbye. And I will too. Bye-bye, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye.